You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 10, follow along with me. Psalmist says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll, he'll never see it. So arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is keen forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege that we have to meet here this morning freely. Um, to study Your Word, to hear from You. And Father, I ask that You would um, speak to us. That You would speak to our hearts. That You would speak to our souls. That You would um, transform our minds through the preaching of Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would come and be strength to those of us who are weak this morning. That You would come and be healer to those of us who are wounded this morning. That you would come and be um, inviting to those of us who are walking in rebellion this morning. Father, I pray that you would um, just come and be powerfully present through the power of your Spirit. That you would draw our attention to uh, the work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary and the power of the empty tomb. I pray that you would. Do this and more. 
trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. The main question uh, of this text really boils down to this. Where is God when it hurts? That really is uh, the question all throughout. Where is God when it hurts? When, when bad things happen to us, where's God at? It's far away? Is, is He hiding out? Like these are the kinds of questions that uh, the psalmist wrestles with um, just immediately coming out, coming out of the gate in verse 1. If you look back at verse 1, he's, he asks that. He says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, these are questions that I think we ask all the time deep down inside of our hearts and our souls on a, on a day-to-day basis. I think we ask these questions this way. Uh, we ask, um, where was God when, when my child died? We ask, where was God when I didn't get that promotion? We ask, uh, where was God when I lost my job because of someone else's schemes? We ask, where was God when I failed that test? Where, where was God when I took that hundredth pregnancy test only to find out that I'm not pregnant? Where was God then? Where was God in my deepest need? Where was God when it hurt the most? Where was God when uh, the person that I love broke up with me and then found someone new? Where was God then? Where was God when my spouse cheated on me? Where was God when my parents abused me? Where, Where was God when that mass shooter walked into that one place and shot countless people? Where was he then? Was he far away? In those moments, is he, is he hiding from me in my time of affliction, in my time of desperation and need? Where was God when it hurt? Psalmist isn't afraid to ask those questions. That's the beauty of the book of Psalms. I just think that sometimes um, if you were to stand on the outside and look at the church as a person who... Um, maybe has not been interested in a church or not interested in the things of God, I think oftentimes the perception is, man, people inside of those buildings or in those groups are kind of perfect, or at least they think they're perfect, or they act like they're perfect, kind of all squeaky clean, right? I mean, if you just track the natural progression of um, people um, when they go from that place of not being a part of to then part of, as time goes on, it's just easy to, to gather that notion. I think some of that is, uh, um, some of that is a, a misdirection, maybe deception on the part of the person that's not part of. And some of that is definitely lending on the people that are part of the church. There is a tendency to start to act differently, right? And so I think oftentimes if you're standing outside the church, you might get this a vision, this picture of, it's all neat, it's all tidy, it's all clean. Um, and, and then it starts to reek of hypocrisy, doesn't it? As we all instinctively know. And no one in the, anywhere is perfect, right? So what I love about the Psalms, the Psalms kind of takes that whole idea and kind of demolishes it because they're very real, they're very honest. They're asking questions that I think sometimes we kind of want to hide from, or they're asking questions that 
we may not want to give a voice to in some settings because we're maybe afraid, right? Well, if I were to ask that question, I might get looked at differently. That's what I love about the Psalms. The Psalms are real, they're honest, they're raw. There's nothing fake about the Psalms. And that's this psalm, very real. Where is God when it hurts the most? Now, for, for those of you that have been saved for longer than five minutes, it's really easy for you, maybe, to just give the Sunday school answer, right? Isn't it? Um, I've been saved for longer than five minutes. Thank God, otherwise I probably shouldn't be in the pulpit, right? But it's just kind of easy in the moment to be like, oh, well, God's always there. God, God's always with you. Yeah, that's great. That's a great kind of a platitudinal answer to give and then walk away and feel like you did your job, right? More to that. There's more to walking through the pain and the hurt of that question than just giving it a pat answer and then walking away. And I think we all know that. Don't we instinctively know that? Like, I know the answer is God is always present. He's always with me. Can I be honest? There are nights where I have to, well, I'm laying there, I, know, I made note last week of a comment from Spurgeon on this, that unbelief is like a cooting nightbird, a, a, a nightbird that comes in and just hoots at you and tries to cause you to not believe what God's word says, not to believe those answers, God is always with you in your pain. Well, there's nights for me where that hooting nightbird of unbelief just sounds like it's screeching in my ears and I... I need to repeat over and over and over again. I need to preach to myself the truths of God's word. Yes. Doesn't mean that I can just give a quick pat answer and walk away. And that's, that's what I love about the psalmist here is that he, he lingers in it. He doesn't try to hide from the reality, the stark reality of how tough life is. That's really the first thing that I noticed here is that Wickedness is obvious in our world, isn't it? Wickedness is obvious in our world. Verses 2 through 11, if you, were to, if you look at that chunk of Scripture, I just, you get the sense that you, you can't escape wickedness. Right? You can't escape it, no matter how hard you try. No matter how much you try to hide out, no matter how many drugs you do, no matter, no matter how many addictions you get yourself into, no matter, no matter how you try to do it, check out behind the TV, you can't hide from the fact that the world around us is absolutely wicked. The psalmist um, in these verses 2 through 11, he describes the character of wicked people. That's, that's a big, broad overview. He describes the character of wicked people who oppress others and cause senseless harm. What the psalmist sees when he's looking out into this world that we all live in, because he sees arrogance and he sees aggression, he sees violent, wicked people, and he can't help but ask that question, right? Hey, where are you, God? Where are you at in the midst of this pain? Are you too far away to notice what's happening here? Are you hiding from the trouble here, Lord? Are you seeing what I'm seeing here? Are you missing this somehow? He goes on to say that, Lord, I see wicked people, right? Ruthless 
people pursuing the poor and the helpless. I, I just, I want to see these people, these wicked people, uh, get caught up in their own wicked schemes. That's honesty, isn't it? Now, oh, those bad people out there, Lord, I'd like to see them fall into their own holes. That's not very sanitary, is it? Justice, though. Justice, though. He says, man, everywhere I look, I see wicked people arrogantly boasting about their greed as they curse and as they, as they reject the Lord. I see the pride and the arrogance of these wicked people as they refuse to seek the Lord because all they can do right now is just seek their own advancement in this world. They stupidly believe that there is no God. This is what the psalmist is saying. He moves on uh, in verses 5 through 9. He says, I don't understand. I don't understand this, Lord. Why, why do wicked people seem to prosper? Ever asked that question? Like, that person is evil. Why does it seem like their life is so easy and mine is so hard? Right? Kind of get in that place where you kind of play the comparison game. Uh, maybe at times never want stopping and just going, you know what, actually, yeah, that person is absolutely horrible, but I'm just as capable of the things that they've done. I mean, for the most part, I mean, there are some things that are really horrendous that we look at when we make those comparisons. We're like, I would never do that, right? But for the most part, at the end of the day, all of us are probably pretty bent and pretty prone to the same things. And yet, there is a reality here. We stop and we go, man, why does it seem like wicked people get rewarded and, and good people get pushed down? That's what the, the psalmist is saying. people that he's looking at, he says, man, I don't think that they think that they're ever going to get found out. They, they believe that they're above facing judgment. They laugh at anyone who opposes them. They believe, and they even say this in verse 6, that they think they're untouchable. No one's going to take them down, right? They believe that their legacy here on earth is going to last forever. They believe no one can get at them. And then with their mouths, with, with their actual tons, which reminds me of James, because the book of James talks about the tongue being like a rudder on a ship and a really tiny little spark that starts big fat fires. Anybody know how that works with your tongue? Like, there are just days where I'm like, you know what, I just wish that I didn't even have words. I wish that I didn't have a tongue. I wish that I couldn't even speak. Because it would force me to write things down, erase what I'm, you know, and then like work with the phrase and go, okay, now look at what I want to say to you. you know, obviously you couldn't say that, but I can pick and choose really carefully. If you know me well, I mean, you can just tell I'm like, really passionate about things. And sometimes, man, I just, my lips and my tongue, it starts a big fat old wildfire. And you can't even get on top of it. You might as well just like, oh, what are you going to do? You're calling the National Guard with some water, you know? And he points this out, though. So, so here's another place where I'm just as guilty as the next wicked person, right? Anybody else with me in that? Your words, your mouth, your tongue, your lips get you in trouble. Well, he points this out the way he says it. It basically says, with their mouths, they curse, they deceive, they oppress the helpless. Well, that, that's a really descriptive description, if you can grammatically use those two words together. Which I just did, so it doesn't matter. But all these words, right, to describe this, they curse, they deceive, they oppress the helpless. They're, they're always up to no good, he says. Sin is basically their way of life. They wait to ambush innocent people. They murder them without any sense of remorse. They're always looking for new ways to hurt the helpless. They prowl around like vicious lions so they can trap weak people. 
people in their nets. What a, what a really distinct description of the wickedness that we live in. He says, I, I see helpless people getting crushed. I see them sinking down under the weight of the fury of the wickedness in this world. I can, I can hear the cries of helpless people as they, as they cry out and they say, man, has God forgotten me? He has forgotten me. He's, he's hidden his face from me. He'll, he'll never see what's happening to me. On the flip side, if that's if you're looking at verses 10 through 11, on the flip side, the wicked person. If it's his voice there in verses 10 and 11, then it's God's forgotten. God's, God's face is hidden from what I'm about to do. God will never see what I'm doing. So however you want to read that verse, whether it's in the voice of the oppressor or in the voice of the victim, same, the same there. The struggle is where is God when it hurts? He's far away. He's hiding. The thing about these questions is that questions drive our actions, don't they? When you think about that, unanswered questions happen to be like motivators for the activity of our lives. And the psalmist questions uh, in this uh, passage uh, definitely drive him to action. He, he can't sit around any longer. He doesn't know where God is at in the midst of all the wickedness that he sees, but he knows that he can't just sit on his thumbs while wickedness runs rampant in the world. That's a picture I get of the psalmist. He's got these questions, but he can't sit around any longer. He surveys the horror. So what does he do? What does the psalmist, better yet, what do you do? What do we do when we see the horror and the wickedness in the world around us? When we experience it, when we experience pain and hurt at the hands of someone else, when life uh, throws you a curveball, you don't get what you wanted, or you get what you didn't want, what do you do? What do we do in those moments? Psalmist jumps into action. And he jumps into action by hitting his knees in desperate prayer. Anybody ever had that moment where, man, things just went off kilter so badly that you don't even know what else to do? You can't even call your best friend. It's that bad. And you are just driven by your question of why, Lord? Where are you, God, in the midst of this? And you just fall down, hypothetically speaking, on your knees, asking those questions of the Lord. What happened and where are you? The psalmist's questions drive him to his knees. And he cries out in verse 12. He cries out, Arise, O Lord. Now I want you to just stop for a minute. Arise, O Lord, right? Arise, O Lord. I love the word, arise, O Lord. Um, and it just causes me. The beauty of this is I'm, I'm not an Israelite, so, uh, so I'm not reading these psalms in the context that they did. I'm actually reading these psalms in the same context y'all are if you're a believer. And even if you're not a believer yet and you're just like, man, I don't know. Um, you've probably heard of this dude named Jesus who died on a cross and then there was an empty tomb three days later. And that's what we celebrate on Easter instead of the Easter bunny. Sorry to burst your bubble. But at the end of the day, we look back on these psalms through that cross and that empty tomb, right? So when he says, arise, O Lord, what's the picture you get as a believer? 
You get the picture of an empty tomb, don't you? That's what we cry out for is the power of the empty tomb to come and bear weight upon the horror of the things that we see in this life. So I love that it gives me great hope. Yet at the same time, as I read this, this psalmist and I put myself in his shoes, I'm looking forward to that. It's a hope that I have for the future that God will be victorious, like I preached last week, over all of the horror, all of the calamity, all the difficulty, all the suffering of this life. And so the psalmist says, Arise, O God, lift up your hands. Forget not the afflicted. He's crying out for God to do something. Right? How could, how could God let the wicked get away with murder? God will hold them accountable, right? Right? Reality and the truth that as you read this, you kind of see the psalmist kind of moving this way too. I love this because he kind of just, when he moves from all this despair, all this ugliness in the world, he starts to move towards, hey, there is a God. Recognizes that God does see everything that happens present everywhere. When I was younger, um, faced a lot of tough, difficult, painful things in my life, much like many of you in this room. I remember at one point seeing a counselor, and the counselor um, would ask me questions like, well, how old were you when that happened? And I would say, oh, you know, I was like nine years old. I was like 12 years old. I remember the counselor saying, okay, I want you to imagine right now somebody that you know that is that nine years old or 11 years old I want you to imagine that person, that young child going through that. How would you describe what they went through? And I was like, wow, that's horrific. It's interesting when you kind of take yourself out of the context and then view it as somebody else's child or your own child walking through some of the things that maybe you or I have walked through. changes that. And then the next question my counselor asked me was, where do you think God was when that was happening to you? And you know what? Even though I'm a pastor and I preach and I always say, man, God was right there. It's actually really hard to, uh, to describe that Jesus was actually right there in that room when those bad things were happening. He didn't leave. Which brings up all these other questions. Why didn't you act? God, well, why did you allow that to happen then if you're so powerful, so loving, and so good? Those are very real questions that we struggle with. Those are the kinds of questions that the psalmist is wrestling with here. that the psalmist notices as you look at verses um, 14 and 15 is that God does see everything that happens. Nothing gets past Him. He notes every detail of your pain. He remembers every wicked thing that has happened to you. And He will take justice into His own hands. And in fact, you could say easily that justice is some of the primary work of God's hands. When the helpless come to him, he doesn't ignore them. He is the helper and the father of the fatherless. Every, every good father stands up for his children when the neighborhood bully comes around the corner, doesn't he? Every good father would do that. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God that the psalmist is talking about. You can trust that the Lord will break the arm of the wicked. And I love that. Like that, that's MMA style. Right? That's what that is. And it, it is. If you look back at the original Hebrew that this was written in, man, this is, that's violent stuff. My God's going to come back and break the arms of the wicked who use their hands to do wicked things. 
It's a picture of complete justice. It's a picture of they will get what they deserve and the punishment will match the crime. Nobody gets off. Nobody goes scot-free. God will confront evil people with a list of every wicked thing that they've done. No one will be able to escape the justice of God. They will be held accountable. That's the picture the psalmist is coming to. God, even though I don't feel like you're here, and I feel like you're a long ways away, and I still am questioning where are you when it hurts, Lord, I trust that you are the God of justice. The questions do drive our actions. And that is a really good question for us to continue asking of ourselves, I think, throughout the week. Don't you think? Like, what do I do when my questions arise, when my questions go unanswered, when I'm confronted with evil? What do I do when it seems like God is nowhere to be found? What do I do when the senseless evil of, uh, of the wickedness of this world uh, leaves me in pain? Because the psalmist's answer is that he turns to God in prayer. He turns to Him in desperate prayer. He takes refuge in the truth that that our God, no matter how distant, no matter how absent He seems, He's still the God who is present and just. And what that leads to is a renewed confidence in the character of God. Which is the final thing that I notice in this passage, that God's character is totally trustworthy. Totally trustworthy. Psalmist continues his prayer in verses 16 to 18. But as you're reading, I think the emotional sense of these final verses, um, they start to change, they start to shift. Because at the end of verses 14 through 15, right, you can kind of feel the direction changing as he starts to proclaim that God is a God of justice. You start to sense that, right? Um, but then as we get into these verses, we move into 16 through 18, you kind of, it kind of, to me, as I'm studying, as I'm reading and spending time, it feels like a tidal wave of overwhelming emotions that, that just totally shifts. Like it's like the full force of the weight of the character of God is setting in for the psalmist as he's, he has surveyed the questions that his heart has. He's surveyed the wickedness that he sees. And as he prays, his heart begins to shift, begins to change. His heart shifts from Desperation to dependence. From mistrust, trust. You know what that's like? You ever have those moments where you've been walking so afraid, so hurt, so much in pain. You're in desperation. You don't know what end is up or down. You don't even know if you can trust God in these moments, right? You've been in that place and then Suddenly, through a train of events, as you've been honest about where you're at and what's going on, and as you've gone to the Lord in prayer, suddenly something inside of you just emotionally shifts and changes. And you go from desperation to dependence. You go from mistrust to trust. That's what I see happening here. His heart is renewed. He moves from mistrust to renewed trust. He remembers that God is the everlasting King. The everlasting King. There's no other King that is everlasting. 
every ruler of every nation has a dash between two dates. Jesus doesn't have that dash because the tomb is empty. Which makes me question why I would ever put my trust in any earthly leader to begin with. Right? God is the everlasting King. Everything on this earth is going to fade away, but the Lord is King forever and ever, the psalmist says. God hears our cries of helplessness. He strengthens the hearts of the weak. And He will do right by those who have been abandoned and oppressed. And ultimately, the Lord will triumph over the evil and the wickedness of this earth. That's what the psalmist recognizes. This is who I'm placing my trust in, he says. God's character is totally trustworthy. He never changes. He is who He is. That was the answer in the Old Testament. I am that I am. I am who I am. Same thing that Jesus said when asked, who are you? I am that I am. Jesus made the same statement as the God of the Old Testament telling us that Jesus Himself is the God, the Savior that we can serve. Why? Because He has been resurrected. The power of God as an everlasting king has been proven in that. Everything that we believe, everything that we trust in, hangs in the balance on that one single truth that he is the everlasting king because the tomb is empty. That tomb was not empty. Our time here is useless and pointless. God's character is totally trustworthy never changes. He is who He is. When we we feel alone, we feel broken, we feel abandoned, we're abused, we can run to Him. There's nothing too big for His shoulders. Your questions of unbelief, even, those may seem huge to you. I will tell you, those are not anything to God. He's not afraid of your unbelief. In fact, He welcomes you in your unbelief. Because he's the only one that can take your unbelief and turn it into belief. No amount of sharp talking or preaching from me or any other person that could be done that would change your mind. At the end of the day, only God could change your unbelief. God's character is trustworthy. He's the one that does the work of saving and the one who does the work of changing. So you can run to him. Not too weak to overcome what you face. In conclusion, um, quick survey again. The world we live in is full of wickedness. Agreed? There's a ton of unanswered questions in our lives. Agreed? Uh, you run into a Christian that uh, comes across like they have all the answers to all the world's deepest questions. Um, beware. Beware. Oftentimes, um, those unanswered questions motivate us to do some things, right? And sometimes what we do is sinful, because ultimately we're not trusting the Lord. We're trusting in some created thing. That's called idolatry. We won't get into that a whole bunch today. Um, really, if you want to know what idolatry is, just listen to the whole message, because that's in the undercurrent. Um, our questions motivate us to do something. Sometimes what we do is sinful because we don't trust the Lord. And other times what we do is right because we are trusting the Lord. Ultimately, though, 
Uh, ultimately, this is where the power of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus becomes the best news you've ever heard. Ever heard? Because here's the reality. The, the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, that's the place where complete justice and mercy connects. That's the crossroads for complete perfect justice and complete perfect mercy. And it meets at the cross in the face of our dying perfect Savior. The empty tomb is where the power of heaven arises victorious over wickedness. You see, in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, we have the hope of our future victory. And we also have justice for all that has oppressed us, whether that be physical or spiritual. Satan, sin, and the grave have all been wiped out at the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus. God is a redeeming God. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He's an ever-present God. Whether you, listen, whether you've been hurt by someone else's wickedness or whether you've caused hurt because of your own wickedness, either way, God is your refuge. He's your refuge from the consequences of your sin in Christ Jesus, and He's also your refuge from the effects of other people's sin. So in answer to this question, where is God when it hurts? The answer simply is, He's right next to you, and He's standing in the victory cross and the empty tomb, and He's inviting you to walk in that same power. Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I ask God that You would uh, come and do work in our hearts um, over the next few moments as we... Um, as we rest in the finished work of Jesus at the cross, an empty tomb, pray, Father, that you would apply um, the words of this psalm to our hearts, that you would come and once again be strength to of the weak, be healer to the wounded, be courage to the fearful, and anxious, be peace, and be redeemer to those who are rebellious. Lord, we thank you for the truth that uh, in this place, all of us are the same. There's not one of us in here that's any different. At the end of the day, Father, we trust and we know that all of us here have been leveled by sin. That we are sin-soaked rebels who are seeking salvation at the foot of the cross. If there's any here tonight, today that uh, are not yet in that place, God, I pray that your spirit would just move their heart to that place. I trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.